Good morning, New Life Church. Good to be with you this morning. Good singing. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2, we continue in a series of messages titled Letters to the Seven Churches. Uh, that is based on the first three chapters of the, the book of Revelation. And today's message is based on the third of these letters to the Pergamum church. Um, let's read Christ's message to, to Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2, from verse 12 to verse 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a Stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, this morning we ask you please to help us, help us to hear what the Spirit has to teach us this morning. We do pray, Father, that you would Give us understanding. Lord, a seemingly complicated passage. We pray that your spirit would help us to understand this message which is relevant even for us today. Lord, we do pray that we would respond, not just here, not just to be here to keep the seats warm, but that we would be doers of your word. We pray, Father, that the word you have for us this morning, we would, we would respond in faith where we need to change, that you will give us the grace to do that, and that you will give us the repentance we need, Father, to to call upon the name of the Lord. So we pray for your help this morning, Lord. May you be glorified, may you be exalted, and Lord, may you be magnified by everything we think and everything we do today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There's a popular song on the radio at the moment that gets a lot of airtime called Human by Ragabone Man. I think that's what it's called, Ragabone Man. Okay, here's one of the verses. I'm only human, I make mistakes. I'm only human, that's all it takes. You can imagine the the music, I'm not going to sing this. (laughs) I'm only human, I make mistakes. I'm only human, that's all it takes. To put the blame on me. Don't put the blame on me. I'm only human. I'm only human. I'm only human after all. I think this song depicts very accurately the the ideology of our modern day. 
you know, that we can do whatever we want without taking responsibility for our actions or without expecting any reproof or, or judgment from, from God or our fellow men. It doesn't really matter how you behave. Don't judge. We're only human after all. And sadly, this way of thinking was true for some in the Pergamon church. The Lord reveals here in our passage this morning that there were some in the Pergamon church teaching this, that God loves you so much, it doesn't really matter how you behave. He will never turn against you. Therefore, live as you please. This was known as antinomianism, which just means lawlessness. And this type of lawlessness was going to invite God's judgment upon them unless they listened to God's criticism and repented. I've entitled my message this morning, Pergamum, the Incomplete Church. And we'll see why they were incomplete in a moment. And Christ's message to Pergamum affirmed their commitment to truth, but they had been tolerant of sin in their own camp. So my first point this morning is in verse 12, the first part, and we look at the address. We see the address to the church. Before considering the Lord's specific address to this local church, let's remember it's a local church, a, a literal church that did exist. We need to get some idea of the context of the historical and cultural circumstances in which this church was founded. Now, first, the city itself was located 90 kilometers north of Smyrna, 25 kilometers from the, from the coast. Um, it had become a Roman city in 133 BC, and was considered to be the capital of Asia Minor, uh, because it was a provincial capital of the Roman government at that time. Um, it was considered to be a very important city in that region. And the culture was, the, the city was also a very religious cultural center, um, with temples that were dedicated just to just about every god imaginable. And the most famous was the the temple of Asclepios, um, I knew I'd get this wrong, Asclepios, Asclepios. So I tried and practiced that and I still got it wrong. Asclepios, the god of, the god of healing, um, closely associated with the, the figure of the snake. And the city was a, a hub of both paganism and pluralism. And the city was also the center of the cultic practice of emperor worship, similar to the, um, the church in, in Smyrna. There was a temple to Augustus Caesar, and the titles of Lord and Savior and God were applied to these, these emperors. I mean, of course, the devoted Christians struggled with this, and they willfully rejected that because their allegiance belonged to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in this passage, the Lord speaks of Satan's throne being in the city. In verse 13, we see where Satan dwells. And most likely, this is the reference to the Roman government that was ruling at that time. Both the politics and the culture of the city were enemies of God. They were enemies of grace, and they were enemies of the gospel. And in light of this political and religious surrounding, the church here would be called upon to exercise their devotion, their, their devotion to Christ alone. If they wanted to be faithful to the Great Commission, if they wanted to make an impact in the community for the glory of Christ, they were going to be facing persecution. 
And the city already had at least one martyr we see in our passage by the name of Antipas. Well, secondly, my second point, the description, the second part of verse 12, we see the description. The Lord referred to himself in this letter as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And the picture speaks of warfare. It speaks of action. It speaks of authority. This is not the only time that our Lord is seen in Revelation with a sword. We see in chapter 1, verse 16, he is seen with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his, his mouth. And later on, he warns the church of Pergamum that should they refuse to repent, in verse 16, he says, he will fight against them with the sword of his mouth. So he is seen again with, with the sword in chapter 19 as well. So the image is twofold. First, this picture is quick, decisive judgment. And the Lord is prepared to bring judgment upon them, upon the church if they, if they do not repent, as well as upon the evil and the, the pagan culture in which they are, are living. And we often have the false idea that Christ's judgment will only come at the end of the age, in the final judgment. It is true that, that Jesus will return to earth. It is true that Jesus will judge the living at the dead at the end of this age. But Scripture also teaches us that Jesus Christ right now is the judge. It was He who brought judgment upon Jerusalem in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, still not to be rebuilt today. And it is the same Jesus who has brought judgment upon apostate churches all over the world for nearly 2,000 years. As Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God continues, present tense, to be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And sadly, the fact is there have been many churches today throughout history that have been characterized by ungodliness, that have suppressed the truth of God, and as a result, invited the judgment of God upon them. And Pergamum was dangerously close to being one of these congregations. And the second picture is the picture of Christ's authority. And he was writing to a church that was literally losing members by the sword. They were physically dying. But the Lord reminded them that he was the one with all authority, the one who ultimately holds the sword in his hand and who will bring judgment upon those who defied him and rejected him. He was the ultimate judge. I think the fear of the Lord is a missing element in in many churches today. It was in this church. In the local church which, which sees Christ as, as just a buddy, as just a, a friend, will obviously not take the, the lordship of Christ seriously. And if this continues, there are consequences which those churches will face. But if the local church is faithful to the living God, and they fear this God of the Bible they will honor him the way he needs to be honored. We cannot fear both man and God at the same time. It is, it is impossible. And these 
people in Pergamum were facing this, this dilemma. Rome had impressive authority, impressive authority. And the city was the capital of this Roman empire in the whole of Asia Minor. But Jesus reminds this local church that even as powerful as the Roman government is, and even though they, they will persecute you, he says, there was no excuse for the church to compromise her message. There was no excuse for the church to compromise her, her ethics. And she was. And we need to be reminded today that Jesus Christ has all authority right now. And he has all authority in the past. He has all authority in the future. He is, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. A picture of authority and he's ruling and reigning right now. I was blessed this week to have lunch with Pastor Andy from St. Andrew's Church with Kevin. And he was sharing a wonderful testimony of Alice Cooper. That might be a strange name to hear in the pulpit. But he was at a lunch with Sheikh Nachyan. And they had called Alice Cooper to perform a concert for Sheikh Nachyan's son. And Sheikh Nachyan was speaking to to Alice Cooper, and he called for, for Pastor Andy to come and sit with him to be part of the discussion. And he called Pastor Andy, and he said, Andy, I need to tell you this, this, this amazing story. Um, Alice Cooper is sharing with me how he became a Christian. He's sharing with me how he came to faith in Jesus. I'm sure you want to hear about this. I mean, what a bizarre story. <laughs> what a wonderful story. I mean, here's Alice Cooper sharing the gospel with, with the sheikh of the United Arab Emirates. I mean, I suspect Alice Cooper understands who has all authority. I suspect Alice Cooper understands that Jesus reigns. We need to be understand. We need to be reminded that Jesus Christ has all authority. Even though we are under authority, we need to understand who is the king of all kings and the one who is returning and the one that we will ultimately answer to. Thirdly, we see in verse 13, the commendation. The commendation. Observe here the commendation. The church in Pergamum lived and worshipped and witnessed in a city where Satan's throne is. That's what it says in verse 13. And where Satan dwells. So they lived in a culture that was definitely diverse, but it was surely wicked. It was a wicked culture. And some commentators suggest that Satan's throne could refer to the, the altar of, of Zeus that sat on the, on the Acropolis there in Pergamum, or it could have referred to the, the temple of the snake, which was Asclepios, the god of healing, where people came from all over the world to, to be healed. Or it could have referred to emperor worship that took place in Pergamum where Christians were pressured to worship the emperor and affirm him as, as Lord and Savior. But Satan was extremely active in this culture. And he was pressurizing the Christians to comply to the culture and to compromise in their faith and their commitment to Christ. And this is very similar to our day and age, isn't it, today? You know, we come from different cultures here in this room this morning. And cultures that constantly want us to accommodate their rejection of God. And all you need to do is consider the different ways our different cultures have been pressurizing Christians to accept 
and embrace the LGBT movement. Even so far as forcing your children to use gender-neutral bathrooms. And if we don't, Christians are branded as homophobic hate mongers. I'm so glad that this is not the case here in the UAE. But nonetheless, there are all sorts of other pressures that we are forced to, to compromise on, that we are tempted to compromise when it comes to our, our faith in the, in the workplace, at school, in our home, in wherever we are, we are tempted to compromise on. And the Lord knew of the difficulties that these believers faced. And believer, we need to be reminded this morning, He knows of the difficulties that we face today, right here. And be encouraged. He is the Lord even over our difficulties, over our troubles. In the world you will have tribulation. Remember, He said that. And He assured His disciples in John 16, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The Lord knows that the culture in which we live is opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that. But He stands with us despite the difficulties that we may face. And Christ went on to commend the church in Pergamum in verse 13. At the end, he says, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. So in the midst of a culture that was oppressing them, these Christians remained committed to Christ. One commentator said, They did not deviate from their fidelity to Christ or to the central truths of the the Christian faith. So in the midst of this opposition, they remained firm, basically. Even in the days of Antipas, it says in verse 13, he was a faithful witness who was killed among you. We don't know anything else from Scripture about Antipas. It doesn't mention him anywhere else. But legend, tradition tells us that he was a Christian in the church in Pergamum right here. And perhaps he was a leader of this church. But he apparently refused to accommodate to this culture. He refused to compromise on his faith. And he paid for his refusal with his life. One commentator says, according to tradition, he was was roasted to death inside a, a brass bull. The Lord called him my faithful witness. A very powerful acclamation. Antipas' faithfulness and courage was was a rebuke to this church because these people were tempted to compromise. And Jesus Christ expects every believer to follow him, even to the point of death. God forbid that, but he expects it. Matthew 16, verse 25, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So our Lord exhorts us to take up our cross and to follow him. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The cross is not a a jewelry ornament that we wear around our neck. The cross was a symbol of death. It was equivalent to the, to the, the hangman's noose that you would Put around your neck when you're being executed. The cross was a symbol of death. The disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are to be willing 
to lay all on the line for the Savior. Because he has laid down his life for us. He's done nothing less. And the church that emphasizes the lordship of Jesus Christ, as revealed in the scripture, will produce disciples like faithful Antipas. But what about us? Let's ask that question this morning. And if Christ were to examine us, and, and he does, and he will, will he say, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith? Will he say that to you? Or will he find that we have accommodated to culture? and We have compromised somewhere in our faith. Well, we see the, the fourth point. Look at the complaint. We see the complaint in verse 14 and verse 15. If verse 13 is the anesthetic, verse 14 and 15 is the surgery. It becomes a little more painful here. And here we learn that this local church was, was inwardly becoming just like the culture which they were trying to oppose, which they were trying to reach. Sadly, we see in verse 14 and 15, but I have a few things against you, the Lord says. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to, take, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Christ's complaint was that some in the church, this wasn't the whole church, notice the word some, it's repeated a few times. Some in the church in Pergamum held to the teaching of Balaam. And they were also holding to the teaching of the, the Nicolaitans, which were, this was very similar teachings, very similar doctrines that were combined here in this church. Now the story of the prophet Balaam is, is told in Numbers chapter 22 through to Numbers chapter 24. And very briefly, Balaam is summoned by Balak, who is the, the king of Moab, to come and curse the people of God who were about to cross the, the Jordan River into the promised land. But every time Balaam opened his mouth, he was only able to bless the people of God rather than curse them. So Balak, the king, offered Balaam a reward and and sadly, Balaam was moved by greed. And Balaam realized that if he got the children of Israel to commit fornication with the Moabite woman and convince them to worship these strange gods of the Moabites, then God's anger would be kindled against his own children and he will curse them himself. Very shrewd man, this Balaam. And this is exactly what happened. He suggested to Balak that the Moabite girls should invite the men of God to take part in these idolatrous and immoral festivals that happened. And eventually these Israelites were seduced by these Moabite girls. And he put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they would eat food that was sacrificed to idols and that they would practice this sexual immorality. And this crusade Balaam went on, he eventually convinced most of the Israelites that they could do whatever they wanted without fear or reproof from God. 
God was always on their side. They were the children of God. It didn't matter what sin they committed. And sadly, many of the Israelites bought into this lie with the result that they learned the hard way that the holy God did judge sin. Whether such sin is in the world or whether it is in the church, God judges sin. And 24,000 Israelites were judged by God for their immorality. They were killed by the holy God. And the Lord reveals here that there were some in Pergamum, in this church, that were teaching the same doctrines as Balaam was. God loves you so much, it doesn't really matter how you behave he will turn against you. He won't do that. You are, you are a Christian. Therefore, live as you please. It doesn't matter. This is antinomianism. This is lawlessness. And it brought in God's judgment. Regardless of whether they were living outside the church in the, in the pagan culture or whether they were inside the church. Fifth, notice a command in verse 16. Christ said in verse 16, therefore repent. And the correct response to sin is always repentance. If we're not willing to, to recognize our sin for what it is, if we're not willing to recognize that we have sinned against God, then we have a heart problem, folks. And Christ wanted the church in Pergamum to recognize that they had tolerated sin in their own camp. They had not disciplined their members in love. They had not come alongside them, those who were, who were teaching these false doctrines. And they did not help these people turn from their, 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 their terrible ways. And the entire church faced the battle sword of Christ's judgment. Look at the last part of verse 16, the warning we see here. Observe the warning. Christ says, if not... I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. One commentator says, The entire church faced the battle sword of Christ's judgment. The heretics for practicing their heresy and iniquity, and the rest of the church for being quiet and tolerating it. What was taking place in Pergamum was was the height of hypocrisy. A worldly church standing against the world. It's a contradiction. And once again, we need to realize that if the local church refuses to submit to the lordship of, of Jesus Christ in, in her own assembly, in her own congregation, then she will have no impact for Christ in the world where we are to go and preach the gospel. The church cannot tolerate evil in any form. It should not. And sinning believers should be made to feel miserable in our fellowship. They shouldn't be made to feel comfortable living in their sin. We should confront them with the, with the word of God that gives them hope. With the word of God that promises a better way. And the goal of the church should not be to provide an environment where unbelievers feel comfortable. 
It is to be a place where they can hear the truth and be convicted of their sins so that they can be saved from their sins. Gently, lovingly, graciously, but yet firmly, we need to come alongside these unbelievers and help them understand that sin is why Christ came to die. And we need to be saved from our sin. Sin is what leads us to hell, folks. And we need to repent of it. Sin is the enemy. Sin is not a friend that we are to entertain, that we are to tolerate in any form whatsoever, no matter what the world is telling us. Christ sent his son for that very purpose. We cannot say for sure why the church in Pergamum became so hypocritical. We don't know for sure, but perhaps like many churches today, they they fell into the sin of individualism, believing that salvation is exclusively an individual experience. So much so that we have no business holding others accountable to obedience in Christ. But the Scriptures teach that to join in membership with a local church is to ask that church to hold us accountable to obey the, the word of God, to help us. And just this week, I was speaking to a member in the church who, who shared that he knew of some people who have left New Life Church because they did not believe in church membership. Perhaps somewhere along the line, people have got a distorted view of what it means to be a church member. And next month, we are having our membership classes and that at the end of these classes, we don't, we don't give you a gold card that you can keep with you to, to display your, your, your platinum um, privileges. Now, membership is about community. Membership is about accountability. And I suspect that those who don't want to become members of a church don't want to be held accountable. Church is not something we go to but something we belong to. Church is not a club. It's not a society. It's a family. It's a spiritual family. And as Christians, we are members of the body of Christ. And you express that membership by belonging to the body of his local church. God has always promised there would be a people for himself from the beginning of the Bible. This means that part of God's work in drawing people to himself is drawing his people to one another in community. When he saves, he gathers. Individuals who come to Christ are assembled together with one another with a purpose. We have a purpose, folks. Not to display our church membership cards just on a, on a Friday when we meet, or to put certificates on the wall, we have a purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him together. We have a purpose to make disciples of His Son together. And we need each other. We need each other to encourage each other to good works, but also to come alongside each other when, when, when we are struggling and to provoke each other, and to lovingly, graciously help each other to be obedient to Christ 
That is why a church exists. Just like the Pergamum church, if New Life Church refuses to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our own assembly, and we tolerate sin in our own assembly, and we live individual lives, never worrying about what the other person is doing, we will have no impact for Christ in the world around us. And as the local church lovingly holds its members to biblical accountability, she becomes more pure and she becomes more powerful in her proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around her. Look at the appeal, my seventh point, second last point. In verse 17, the appeal, Christ said in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ appealed to believers to pay attention, pay attention to what I am saying through the Spirit of God. Listen. And then he gives the promise, the promise at the end of verse 17. Christ promised two things here to faithful Christians. First, he promises hidden manna. He says in verse 17, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now we know God fed his people during their wandering in the, in the wilderness with, with manna. It was angel food. And according to Exodus chapter 16, the people of God were to keep a jar of of manna inside the the Ark of the Covenant. And in this passage, the hidden manna represents Jesus Christ. And He provides spiritual food to all who put their, their faith in Him. One commentator says, The hidden manna symbolizes all the blessings and benefits of knowing Christ. You know, Christ is not a genie in a bottle. Don't confuse me here, okay? He's not a genie that we rub when we want a benefit, when we want a blessing. He is not a genie in a bottle that, that comes when, just when we want something. There are blessings involved when it comes to faithfully obeying Christ. He provides us with a spiritual food when our faith is in Him. But notice the end of verse 17. It also says, And I will give him a white stone. He promises them a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's different meanings. Different commentators have different ideas about this white stone. But according to the ESV, it says, Historically, a white stone was given to victors at games for entrance to banquets. So if you won a particular game, you were given this white stone as a, as a reward, much like a medal, and your name was written on this, on this stone. It was really a ticket into the, the feast at the end of the, the games. And the athlete would carry this as a, as a medal, as an award. And this word picture is simply used to encourage the local church at Pergamum to persevere, persevere until the awards ceremony. Until the Lord returns, until the judgment seat of Christ. Persevere. 
And the same applies to believers in the local church today. If we are faithful in this life, if we are faithful to overcome and confront sin in our own lives and in our church life, then we will receive a symbolic white stone. And when we enter glory with a white stone, we will receive our full reward that awaits us. We should never tolerate sin in our lives. We should never tolerate sin in the church life. And we should seek to be a, a loving church. But we should also seek to obey the truth of God's word in every area of our, of our lives. This week I read a story about Tim Keller, who's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. And the story goes, for many years, Tim Keller invited people to stay after the worship service and ask him questions, particularly about the sermon. But many of them had never heard the gospel. And Tim's proclamation of the good news was impacting hundreds of people. And one Sunday, a group of people gathered after the worship service, and one lady said, I have been coming to Redeemer for about four Sundays. I love what I'm hearing, and I want to become a member here. But I have a question. Do I need to give up my lesbian relationship in order to become a member? All eyes in the group turned and looked at the lady. And then all eyes in the group turned and looked at the pastor. How would you have answered that question? Here, here's how Tim Keller answered that question. He said to the lady, actually, I think you are asking the wrong question. The question you need to ask is this. Is Jesus Christ who he claims to be? Let me repeat that. Is Jesus Christ who he claims to be? You see, if Jesus is God, he said, and if he is the savior of sinners, then when I surrender my life to him, I don't come and bargain with him. I surrender everything in my life to his lordship, and I do what he says. That is a great answer. And it's a question that I leave with you this morning. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Or are you bargaining with Him? Are there areas of your life which you are not willing to submit to Him? Is there sin in your own camp, in your own heart this morning, that you have not repented of, that you are not willing to lay at the feet of the cross, the feet of the Savior who came to die for your sins? For those of us who are Christians, we are not just Human, after all. We have been adopted into God's family. We have been given a new name. We are Christian. We are His children. We have been bought with a price. And His children obey Him in everything He says. We are not tolerant of error, but we corporately commit to obey the truth of God's word in every area of our lives. And may God help us to be such a church for the joy of his people and for the glory of our Savior. God's people say, Amen. Let us pray.
Father, again, we just take a moment to thank you for being our Savior. We don't deserve your grace. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We deserve nothing less than to be punished for our sins. To suffer in the lake of hell forever and ever. We deserve that, Lord. But yet, in your mercy and in your grace, you sent Jesus to save us from our sins. The one who would bear the sin of the whole world on his shoulders. The one who would suffer a cruel death that we deserve to suffer. The one who willingly gave up his life for the redemption of our souls. We say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us sinners. I pray this morning, Lord, you know, if there are people amongst us who have not been saved, that you would save them this morning, that they would cry out to Jesus, and they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, that today would be the day of their salvation. Grant them the faith they need, Lord, to see that they are in need of a Savior, and that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the only hope that we have. So Lord, we, we pray that you forgive us, Lord, where we have compromised this week, where we have succumbed to the pressure of the, the culture around us and where we have been unfaithful in acknowledging you for the good gifts that you give us. Lord, where we have been unfaithful in giving you the glory for the good things that you've blessed us with, where we have been ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we have not taken Opportunity we should have to tell our friends about our Savior. We pray you forgive us for that. We pray that, Lord, we would not have this attitude of tolerance in our lives. That you would forgive us for that, Lord, where we have just compromised so much, Lord, that we don't even understand what sin is anymore. That we would not be hypocrites, Lord. That we would not sit in the church seat every Friday and say amen, but then go home and practice those same sins, Lord. We pray that we would not become hypocritical, Lord Jesus, where our children would look at us and wonder, how is it, Dad? How is it, Mom, that you call yourself Christian, but yet you say those things, you do those things? May our children never say that about us. May the world around us never say that about us. May the community that we're trying to reach never say that about us. But may they point to us, New Life Church, and say, I see Jesus in you. We pray that we would be a powerful force, Lord, in this culture where you have placed us. And we know there's no chance, there's no coincidence that you have brought us to this place, Father. May our light shine. May our light shine brightly for you this week, Lord. May we be encouraging each other this week. May we come alongside our brothers and sisters and may we be willing to be held accountable, Lord, so that our lights would shine brightly and that people would see our Father and glorify Him.
Jesus' name I ask.